Hi everyone, this is Kerry here with Rab. For this bonus episode, we're going to be taking a look at Bishop George Berkeley, the 18th century Trinity College Dublin fellow who owned enslaved men, women and children. Berkeley is back in the news because Trinity College has decided the need to take his name off the college library. This denaming of the library is part of an ongoing legacy review Trinity is undertaking. Earlier this year, Trinity decided to return skulls stolen from the west of Ireland, coastal and island communities in the late 19th century by Trinity College anthropologists. In episode one, we examined the theft of skulls from Inish Boffin and how it reflected British imperial racist views about Irish people. And what we also did in that episode was show that, far from being primitive, Ireland has had a long and complex history. And then part of that history was explored in episode two, where we examined an amazing medieval LGBT wonder tale that featured a monk from Inish Boffin who'd been kidnapped by sky demons. And at the moment, we are in the process of researching episode three, which will take us back to late 19th century, early 20th century Ireland to examine some more troubling aspects of popular culture in the country at that time. So it seemed as if our initial examination of the theft of skulls from Inish Boffin has begun to evolve into a wider meditation about Ireland, race and culture. And as part of that examination, we were going to talk about the issue of Trinity College Dublin having a library named after a slave owner. But then in the process of researching, the very welcome news broke that Trinity was to change the name of said library. As we've been researching the Inishboffin skulls, the media coverage regarding the Berkeley Library has begun to increase. Aye, but the, the thing about the media coverage of this news, it's been very basic to say the least. It's been framed using a very sanitised version of history. It's like, Bishop George Berkeley was an esteemed philosopher who happened to own slaves. But in actual fact, Berkeley did not just happen to own enslaved men, women and children. It wasn't a footnote in his life story by any means. He tirelessly used his position and influence to entrench the slave system and further strengthen the power that slave owners had over the humans they enslaved. It was not a casual slave owning, <laughs> if that exists. I happened to, oh, look, I, I happened to have bought a couple of human beings when I was going down the shop to get my cigarettes inside. No, <laughs> exactly. No, no, no. The, the guy was very focused. He knew what he was doing. So anyway, uh, so we're going to get a bit of a dive into that. We're going to use two pieces of research for this bonus episode. Uh, one is baptism does not Bestow Freedom, and it's by Travis Classen. And uh, another piece is The Working Paper on Berkeley's Legacies at Trinity, and that's by Dr. Mobin Hussain, Dr. Kieran O'Neill, and Dr. Patrick Walsh. And I think one of the most important things about the working paper is that it actually gives us some of the names of these enslaved people. Which is great. So, who were they? So I'm going to quote from the working paper now. Upon arrival in Rhode Island, he, Berkeley, purchased, quote, Edward, age 20 or whereabouts, for £76, and Philip, age 14 or thereabouts, for £80, end quote. Presumably to help the work on his plantation. 
and in the following June, the records of Trinity Church, Newport, show that Berkeley baptised Philip, Agnes and Anthony Berkeley, who were described as being, quote, some of, end quote, the people he owned, implying that there may have been many more enslaved people situated on his estate. Okay, okay. I mean, it's good to know these are real human beings with mm. real names and ages, and it's, it's very little we know, but at least, you know, we know it's humans, not just objects called slaves. So I've also been looking into the, this Berkeley's philosophy, because he's an esteemed philosopher, and I'm going to tell you now, um, I've been looking at it, and what I get of it, it reads like a an entitled abuser's mandate. Do you want to give us the TDLR for uh, the less chronically well, online listeners okay. such as myself? TDLR yes. stands for too long, didn't read. So essentially give us the rundown, give us the synopsis. All right. Okay. It's like, okay, I've got it. Uh, <laughs> well, essentially, here you go. You're ready. Summing it up, and I'm sure philosophers out there might pull their hair out, but summing it up, essentially, reality only exists if we perceive it to exist. Oh, here we go. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. It sounds weird. So I took a, a leap into the Stanford Encyclopedia of Philosophy to try and figure this out. So I'm, I'm going to do a lot of paraphrasing, honestly. Mm -hmm. This will not surprise anybody. I am not a philosopher, all right? Just so you know. All right, so to paraphrase the encyclopedia. Cool. Berkeley does not deny the existence of ordinary objects such as stones, trees, books, and apples. But the existence or reality of those objects is dependent on the combination of ideas held by the person who perceives that object. That's dense. So to quote the Encyclopedia of Philosophy, an apple is a combination of visual ideas, including the sensible qualities of colour and visual shape, tangible ideas, ideas of taste, smell, etc. Hi. So there you go. Which means, or it might mean, because honestly, Kerry, it might not mean, but I think what it means is <laughs> an, an object exists as a summation of the perceptions of the person that sees it. Okay. okay, that kind of does make sense. Right, Listeners, please note, as Rab said, we are not philosophers. Any philosophers in the chat, anyone listening, please feel free to reach out and clarify. Although I don't know how many philosophers are cutting around in 2023. So if you are one, please let us know. Email us at theceltictaleschronicles at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you. Please do. Um, all right. I was thinking of this, and if I grasp this idea correctly, and that's a big if, it does fit in with Berkeley's views on slavery, okay? And the idea is, you know, this idea of perception. So mm -hmm. I see a teenager. I perceive that person as a summation of all the things I know about teenagers, having been a teenager and being the father of teenagers. So I see hopes, expectations, worries, longing to be an adult, fear of no longer being a child, a need for love, curiosity, wonder. That's what I see. But somebody else could see that teenager and perceive them from a purely economic viewpoint. They are muscle, they are labour, they are property to be used, punished, bought and sold. They are something, they are an object, they are a slave. This is me getting inside the head of the slave owners. This is not my personal <laughs> view of teenagers. And you know what? 
it's listeners, it's it's quite a horrible place to be inside a slave owner's head, just so Yeah, yeah. yeah. We're doing so we're doing this for you guys. <laughs> yeah, it's not a nice place to be. But uh okay, so now that's the, I think that's his philosophy. So mm-hmm. what we're gonna do now is we're gonna quickly sum up the career of Bishop Berkeley and then we'll examine his involvement with enslaving men, women and children. All right, over to you, Kerry. Okay. I'm just going to grab my laptop charger for one second. It's just over here. Um, so I'm just going to take my headphones off. That's the kind of thing Bishop Bentley would say. My laptop charger is <laughs> chained to the wall there. It, oh, my God. That's what I'm chained to the wall with my laptop. Oh, dear, 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 dear. Um, okay. Okay. So, so strap in, listeners. This is a long, long story. So in 1685... He was born into a powerful family in Kilkenny. He became a fellow of Trinity in 1707, and he worked as a lecturer and librarian there. In 1721, he took holy orders in the Church of Ireland, and in 1724, he became the Dean of Derry in Northern Ireland. He was regarded as an intellectual heavyweight and a powerful networker of the elite in Ireland, England, and the North American colonies. In 1734, he became the Bishop of Cloyne for the Church of Ireland. No rest for the wicked. He was a very busy man. And a very, very wicked man. So Indeed. Yeah. <laughs> he was busy being wicked. I, yes. <laughs> I keep wanting to curse, but I'm not. I'm going to be careful about this. So, all right. No. All right. Why is he wicked? Well, from early on in his career, he was a ceaseless advocate of slavery. And in 1725, he published a pamphlet with the snappy title Proposal for the Better Supplying of Churches in Our Foreign Plantations and for Converting the Savage Americans to Christianity. That's a snappy title indeed. In this pamphlet, he did not just advocate baptism as a good thing generally, but he promoted baptism as a way of making enslaved people even more obedient to their masters. Quote, it would be to their advantage to have slaves who should obey in all things masters according to the flesh, not with eye service as men pleasers, but in singleness of heart as fearing God. End quote. So, accept your enslavement or live in fear of God sending you to burn in hell. And this was all part of Berkeley's plan to establish native missionaries to spread Christianity and, I guess, absolute obedience among First Nation Americans. It was a plan that he also proposed kidnapping First Nation people. Yeah, I mean, this sounds horrifying to us. But the thing was, it was supported by many of Berkeley's contemporaries in trying to accomplish Dublin. Mad men. Mad men, indeed. Yeah. So as part of this plan, in 1729, Berkeley arrived in Newport, Rhode Island, where he bought land and he bought enslaved people. Ultimately, his plan did not come to fruition, but Berkeley did end up establishing himself as an important figure in the colonies, especially as a diehard advocate for slavery. So, as I said earlier, definitely not a casual slave owner if such a thing existed at the time. He was all about it. He was he was all about it, yeah. And it wasn't just the owning of the slaves or the, you know, that was he was into. He had other Polling initiatives, and we're going to look at one of them now. Mm. And it's an initiative, it's got the bland name of the York Talbot Opinion. 
even less of a snappy title. Yeah. Okay, so let's recap. In the North American colonies, baptism is now being used as another tool of coercion and control of enslaved people. However, back in England, the mother country, the issue of slaves being baptised was viewed as more problematic. And Rab is going to detail the next source used in his research. Yeah. So I was using this lovely article, Baptism does not doth not bestow freedom. Missionary, missionary Anglicanism, slavery, and the York Talbot opinion, and it's written by Travis uh, Glasson, and he's a history professor at Temple University, Philadelphia, in Pennsylvania. We have we have lots of listeners in Pennsylvania. Shout out to you. Shout, out, shout out to everyone in Pennsylvania. Yeah. Um, so Professor Glasson writes that there was a popular idea in England at this time that if an enslaved person was baptised, then they automatically became free. So I guess the idea is if you're baptised, means you have a soul, so you would be free in the eyes of God. So the whole issue of enslaved people who were also in England, it was seen as legally a bit of an icky, tricky subject. So plantation owners travelling to or residing in England and Ireland would often bring enslaved people with them. But the question was, were these people actually classed as slaves in England and Ireland, or did people pretend they were simply servants with no rights or agency? So eventually a fudge was agreed on. Enslaved people were not technically slaves in England. They were simply unfree. They lacked any right to independent agency. But this lack of clarity was annoying for slave owners because it didn't clarify if they owned these people or not in Britain and Ireland. So at which point Berkeley, the advocate of slavery... As well as using an advocate of using baptism as a tool of coercion and also an advocate of supporting the kidnapping of First Nation Americans, I could go on. Can't forget. As well as that, he stepped up and used his connections to solve this so-called problem for slave owners. Now, we couldn't quite figure out how he helped create the York Talbot opinion. Did he lobby? Did he network? Did he actually write the damn thing? We don't know. And I guess that is the way decisions are taken at elite levels of power, even nowadays. Decisions are made, but nobody leaves any traceable evidence. So no one can be held accountable for the choices made. Spineless politicians have always existed and continue to exist. They do. They do indeed. Absolutely. So uh, anyway, here is what Professor Glasson's article says about such spineless folk. Um, Quotes. A circle associated with philosopher George Berkeley played an essential role in procuring and promoting the opinion. Evidence suggests that the opinion was solicited not by slave owners to discourage claims for freedom, but by churchmen to facilitate the baptism of enslaved people. This promotion of slave conversion through the law was not an aberration, but consistent with various aspects of Berkeley's thought and multiple earlier attempts by supporters of missionary Anglicanism to alter colonial and imperial laws concerning slavery. End quotes. So I hear our listeners ask, who or what is York Talbot? They are Philip York, and he's the, the Attorney General of England at the time, and Charles Talbot, and he's England's Solicitor General. So basically, these two guys are at the pinnacle of the British Empire's legal system. An absolute classic. 
racist white guys in charge a time-honored british tradition yeah yeah mm. i you know what <laughs> what a week out from the coronation of the the new king of england i'm just saying nothing changes there's just yep okay. anyway before i go off my rant there anyway okay because they were who they were their opinion mattered and it mattered more than anybody else's opinion and what they say because they are so powerful they are the elite of the elite of the law and the, the empire what they say it's going to impact how laws are interpreted and also how they are created. So they were lobbied to give an opinion on baptism that benefited Anglican missionaries and slave-owning plantation owners. And York and Talbot duly gave their opinion. What did it say, Kerry? So it said, quote, We are of opinion that a slave, by coming from the West Indies to Great Britain or Ireland, either with or without his master, doth not become free, and that his master's property or right in him is not thereby determined or varied, and that baptism doth not bestow freedom on him, nor make any alteration in his temporal condition in these kingdoms. We are also of the opinion that his master may legally compel him to return again to the plantations. So, once a slave, always a slave, no matter whether where you are or whether you are baptized, regardless of anything, you're a slave. And this opinion clarified and simplified everything for the benefit of missionaries and slave owners alone. Yeah, not, definitely not for the slave people. No. It did no benefit them at all. Um, another group that had a benefited was London merchants. And these were the guys who gave credit to plantation owners. And then the idea was if plantation owners failed to pay their creditors, then of course they would want to seize their property. But the question then was, could enslaved people be regarded as property in Great Britain Island? And up until the York Table opinion, it was unclear whether enslaved people were still slaves of the design in Great Britain or Ireland. But now, there's no ambiguity. They are slaves, they are property. And this opinion helped in the formation of the 1832 Recovery of Debt Act, which recognised that enslaved people were to be regarded as property that could be seized to recover debts no matter where in the empire those debts had been incurred. So assets like property, wealth, and so on could be seized, and so too could enslaved people. Yeah, I think this law is one more example of how central slavery was to the commerce and the economics of the British Empire. Again, it wasn't just some, a happen chance thing, it just happened. Mm. It was absolutely crucial. And while it further entrenched the horrific enslavement of black, indigenous men, women, children. It was warmly welcomed by the economic and legal elite of the empire. I think it was more than just warmly welcomed. I think the elites really love this new law and it might have just been a coincidence. But the year after the law was passed, Talbot was promoted to Lord Chancellor, York to Chief Justice of the King's Bench, while Berkeley became Bishop of Cloyne for the Church of Ireland in January 1734. It seems like it's a you scratch my back, I scratch yours. It's exactly the way politics has always been run. So, yeah, food for thought. Yeah. So this guy, Bert, he was, he was in the mix of all this. He was in the mix mm. of owning people, of increasing the power of people who owned people. And it just, uh, anyway. So, yes, I think 
In summary, it is about time that Trinity College renamed the library. Absolutely, because even the way you're seeing it put across in the media is, oh no, this guy owns some slaves, when in actual fact he was instrumental to yeah. setting up yeah. slavery to be integral to commerce yeah. at the time. He, he was the guy that's right in the middle of it all. He's, yeah. yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. But on a lighter note, curiously a note, sorry, I'm going to say that again. So on a lighter note, curiously enough, by strange coincidence, a lovely event took place on Rhode Island in October 2022. Yeah, there was a service at the Trinity Church Newport in Rhode Island to mark the dedication of a slave history medallion at the church. And Mark put the medallion there because it was at this very church that Berkeley mm. promoted the York Talbot opinion to his fellow slave owners. And according to the website of the Episcopal Diocese of Rhode Island, the medallion was installed by the Rhode Island Slave History Medallion, RISHM, project, a statewide effort to promote public awareness of the history of slavery and the slave trade across the state. So Trinity Church is now one of a growing number of sites at which a QR-coded bronze plaque called a medallion opens a web page on visitors' mobile phones explaining the site's connection to the history of slavery in Rhode Island. This is just a really, it's it's simple, but it's, it's also just incredible. You know, it's something we need mm. here in Ireland. You know, black people know where enslaved people in Ireland lived, where they worked. If they were seized as property, where, where did that happen? This should not be erased. We need our wee medallions over here, which with our QR code so folk can, yeah. No, these people here, yeah. they were part of the history they, they loved. And it's also so important to note what businesses and famous Irish figures benefited from the enslavement of other human beings. Hopefully this, this bonus episode will give our listeners some more insight into that truly appalling individual, the Bishop George Berkeley. Indeed. And I know it seems like the vast majority of our episodes at the moment are bonus content, but I honestly can't tell you how much info we have uncovered in this quest for truth regarding the Inishboffin skulls. It's been so interesting and illuminating, and I really hope our listeners feel like their minds are being broadened and their historical knowledge expanded, because I didn't know about any of this until I started researching. I I think we, we started from this very simple thing. Mm. Skulls, Inishboffin. And suddenly we're looking at, you know, well, we're looking at medieval LGBT stories that involve Lynch Buffin monks. We're looking at uh, anthropology. We're looking at, now we're looking at initial enslavement. And we're looking at, we're looking at the human zoos, as you're saying as well. For those who don't know what human zoos are, these are places where brown and black people were displayed for the entertainment of white people. And they happened here. In Ireland as well, we're going to be looking at that as part of our Inchbotham series. So, um, yeah, I'm going to say, if you feel that your mind has been broadened and your knowledge expanded, you know, let us know. Um, you can email us at theCelticTalesChronicles at gmail.com. Yes, and you can also see us weekly in the Crane Bar for Rab Storytelling on Sea Road in Galway. And tickets are always on Eventbrite in the episode notes. Yeah, yeah. I think I think we've covered that. I want to get my. You know what? Oh, I feel. Ah, oh. So you know what? 
we've done it. We've talked about that horrible man. Let's talk about something nice. Terry, what news have you got? Do you want to give us some nice news you want to share with? Yes. Yeah. I think it's always good to shake it off after a topic yeah, like that definitely. and talk about something a bit nicer. Yeah. Um, yeah, my housemates and I are trying to do up our garden at the moment. So I was telling you, Rob, I went to the garden centre at the weekend and yeah. bought some shears and I have been clipping away at the hedges and it's actually been so much fun. I definitely recommend um, if anyone has any pent up anger, buy a pair of shears and just go to town on a hedge. Doesn't have to be your hedge. Um, it's very fun. And yeah, we're trying to do up the garden so it's a bit nicer for summertime <laughs> when you're living in a rented house. It's kind of hard to make t- too many big changes, but yeah, we're we're doing what we can. Oh, that sounds lovely. I mean, it sounds really nice just hanging out with humans and just having fun and plants. Yeah. yeah. Humans and plants, definitely yeah. two of my most favourite things. Oh yeah, oh yeah. What about you? Do you know what I, I was doing this project uh, at the start of the year? It kind of ran on for a wee bit. I was mm. there's, a, there's a thing in Ireland called um, poet, uh, excuse me, it's called Poetry's Commemoration, and it's this idea where poets are engaging with groups, schools, things like that, um, to help create poetry, reflecting on artifacts and relics from that big historic part of Irish history, you know, the, the war, you know, the Easter Rise and the War of Independence and the Civil yeah. War. So I was doing that with, um, I was doing that with Blue Pot Theatre and we were doing that, looking at some of the relics in the Gobbleset Museum. So then I was engaged with them, then I went away and I turned all the remarks and stuff and ideas. I created five poems. So I then recorded those poems with the or the Teapot Theatre. And then I sent them on to um, Catherine over at the, the Poetry's Combination Collection, which is over in UCD Special Collections. And so now what they're going to do is um, they've asked me now if I could handwrite the poems now, so to handwrite them. And then the idea is that they'll be, they'll be archived in the Poetry's Commemoration Wow! Um, in the James Joyce Library over there. So yeah. Oh I'm my God! Of... Congratulations! That's amazing. Yeah, it's really nice. Do you know what? I just haven't had time to actually do the handwritten bit, so I need to that's get it. it. Done. But so that's I really, I really it was yeah, a lovely project. Oh, fair play. Yeah. So that was kind of nice. That's what I, that's my kind of nice stuff. So yeah. So yeah, that's my news. Very that's good. News. That's fantastic. And if you guys have any good news, feel free to send us an email. <laughs> Aye, and stay tuned. There's going to be lots of stuff we're, we're, we're digging into, skulls and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Eventually, we're going to get to obviously the most important thing, which I've been wanting to do since episode one. We haven't got there yet, but we will get there, which is, as mm-hmm. everybody knows, in 2018, Ireland was invaded by UFOs. We all know this. So we do. I'm still digging into that. That's going to be an episode at some point along the line, so stay tuned. Um, Bye. And give us your opinion, give us any ideas, any thoughts yourselves, send them on to us. Yes, absolutely. And remember to rate and review, give us five stars on Spotify. Uh, Leave us a nice comment if you're on any of the other um, podcast apps that allow comments. Um, Yeah, I think think that's it. I think we're both ready for a cup of tea. (laughs) I have to go and do it myself now, so. All right, Terry, Slan. Slan.
The Celtic Tales Chronicles is written, hosted and produced by Kerry Graham and Rob Fulton. Edited by Rob Fulton. Cover artwork by Kerry Graham. Music by Kevin McLeod.